This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 380th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an Indian actress who, by any objective metric, is one of the biggest movie stars in the world. She first made her name 21 years ago, at the age of 17, when she was crowned Miss India and then Miss World. Just a few years thereafter, she was one of Bollywood's biggest box office attractions and one of the youngest ever recipients of India's version of the Best Actress Oscar, the National Award. And then, within the past decade, she began to work in America as well, becoming in 2015 the first ever Indian lead of a primetime network series with Quantico, which ran for three seasons on ABC. Now, among many other things, she can be seen in Ramin Barani's Netflix film The White Tiger, on which she also served as an executive producer, and which is nominated for the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar. And she has also written a memoir, Unfinished, which dropped in February and quickly became a bestseller. I'm talking, of course, about Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Over the course of our conversation, the 38-year-old and I discussed her experiences growing up between India and America, the freak circumstances that led to her sudden fame as a beauty contest winner, how, ever since, she has strategically navigated her career on multiple continents, and what about her she feels remains, to use her word, unfinished, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Priyanka, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to have you and congratulations on both the Oscar nominated film and the best-selling memoir. That's a pretty big one-two combo at, at the same time. How are you feeling? Thank you for having me here, Scott, first of all. And I feel like it was a pretty great beginning to 21. <laughs> um, yes. I couldn't have asked for more, I guess, uh, especially after 2020 brought the world to you know our knees. Um, I'm just really grateful to be at work and I'm really grateful to be a part of work that is resonating with people. Uh, eventually, that's what every artist wants. And I'm just really grateful that The White Tiger is getting the love that I think it deserves. Absolutely. Well, we will obviously talk about Unfinished, this this excellent book here, but uh, I hope you'll humor me because the format of this podcast is sort of talking about the major moments in a guest's life. So maybe in a way we can just sort of tease the book without giving it all away, if that's okay, just chronologically. And and so I guess just to begin with, we always start by asking our guests, uh, you know, can you share where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living? Yes, of course. Um, I was born in Jharkhand, India, and um, both my parents were doctors in the military. Uh, my father was a general surgeon, my mother was a gynecologist, and through their years they changed various degrees, but um, yeah. And you guys moved around a lot because of their work, right? Because my parents were in the military, my dad was posted to a different city within India every two years. So we moved around a lot. Um, I'd probably changed almost four or five schools by the time I was already 12 years old. Um, and then I decided to move to America and live with my mom's sister at 12 or 13. And I wasn't afraid of it because I was already used to moving around so much by then. Yeah. Before we talk about that major decision in your life, I want to just note, it seems like, you know, people who have moved around a lot, uh, who we've had on this podcast, they tend to have either become very introverted from that because they're intimidated by always seeing new people, or there's something about it where they just say, the hell with it, I'm going to, you know, let myself out and show who I am. And I wonder, it seems like there was maybe elements of both because you were performing even as a kid, right? 
I was. Um, I think that for me, I became... I was excited about the adventure of life, you know, I was curious about it. I wasn't afraid of going to a new school or meeting new people. I was curious. Um, I didn't feel the need to be attached to like material things like, you know, my home or my bike or my garden or um, I kind of, those things kind of went away as I got used to traveling and it kind of became adventurous for me. Um, and my father, when I was very young said, that every time you go to a new place, it's like a blank slate. You can be whoever you want to be. You can leave behind your mistakes. You don't have to carry the burdens of your past when you go to a new place. And that's a really powerful thing to say to, a, you know, a preteen. And I just took it very seriously. And every time, you know, I moved to a new city, I decided what character I was going to take on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's like acting. And, and in the other thing, you know, aside from acting, I know that people know you for among among many other things was singing and that was something that he really encouraged from an early age right I mean music was my dad's first love it came before my mom before surgery it came before anything else um you know and it was something that stayed by his side till the day he died and he wanted to be a musician but I think when he was growing up it wasn't a viable profession and um, so his creativity took a back seat and, uh, you know, he became a doctor because that made most sense. But um, his favorite thing was, you know, doing stage shows, singing for anyone who would listen. Um, and all day we would just have music in the house. So when I decided to do it, and even though I'm not probably as um, creative as my father was, or uh, when it comes to music specifically, he, he just had an ease about it, which I don't. Um, I started dabbling in it and he was most excited. He was most excited to hear about what the studios are like and, you know, what is the writing process now? And um, he was very unwell. I lost him to cancer in 2013, but he was very unwell during that period of my life. But he would just brighten up every time I would come and play him a new song or a new tune. Yeah, it's a, it's an awesome thing to see your, see your kid kind of go where you didn't quite get to go. So, so this, this decision though, I mean, you were clearly, uh, very close with your parents. And in fact, we see on the cover of your book, your tattoo on your right hand that says daddy's little girl, which I know was, uh, very much the case. So how it must've been kind of a conflicting thing to, to just sort of up and leave them for a few years to go to America, right? What was that? What went into that decision? When I was 12, right? Yes, that time yes, you're talking about. yes. I think, you know, I think when you're 12 years old, I had lived with my grandparents. My parents were, you know, working parents. So a lot of the time my grandmother used to stay and take care of me and my brother. Um, we went to uh, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather. I lived with him till I was three years old because my mom was doing her post-graduation. So I was just used to... You know, I was always loved, surrounded by family, but it didn't have to be my parents. I saw a lot of um, my family, my extended family as paternal in my life, um, you know, as paternal figures and maternal figures in my life. So it was not shocking, but I was just so enamored by what high school in America looked like that I just, you know, it was something out of television for me when I landed into into the US and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like Beverly Hills 90210 or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> those shows well, and a big... Saved by the Bell. <laughs> right. And a big part of it was no uniforms, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. In India, um, we have uniforms in most schools because, um, you know, it helps create, erase the class divide between children. So everybody's the same. Um, but in America, that wasn't the, wasn't the case. So for... I mean, my teenage vanity was very excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, even within America, you were moving around. I know that um, there was some time in Iowa, Queens, Newton, Mass, uh, where actually is very close to where um, my closest Indian uh, friend, Shivani Dave, grew up in Concord. And she's told me similar things to what you've described about, you know, it's it's not always easy being one of perhaps just a few people in an American junior high school, high school setting, right? I mean, there's ups and downs. 
I mean, I in my class, I don't remember anyone being um, of Indian descent. Um, but you know, I I wasn't I didn't have a problem with that. I'm I was okay being different. I was extroverted. I liked people. I was um, you know I was kind of feeling myself after having lived in Queens, and you know I just realized that guys were interested. <laughs> you know, I suddenly got, I was like, whoa, you know, I was yeah. dealing with hormones and there was too much happening at that point to pay attention to, to the fact that there was no other Indian people in my class until right. I was reminded of that. You know, um, I was dealing with all my preteen things at that point, trying to figure out where I get my, the newest flared jeans from because all the other girls were wearing them. But, um, I, you know, that's the thing that happens with bullying is, especially when it's race related. I think um, you feel a sense of being devalued and um, a sense of like inferiority almost. And I, I was very lucky and I was very blessed that the, I had the ability to move places. I, I could turn around and you know call my mom and say, I want to come back to India or I don't want to go to school here anymore. There are so many people in the world that don't have that luxury. Um, yeah, and then are stuck in situations which are abusive. And so I, I was very blessed that I could get out of a toxic situation. Um, whereas I know that that's not normally the case. And so was that, you know, you, you mentioned in the book encountering some, you know, uh, some racism in, in American schools, which I, I am sorry to hear about. And I guess, though, was that the reason why you decided, I guess, at about 17, I'm going back to India or was that always the plan? No, it wasn't the plan. I was supposed to go to college in, in the States, but I just, I kind of broke up with America at that point. My, my heart was hurting and, you know, I had, I'd learned and embodied so much. I really, my teenage years, my, till I was 17 was divided equally almost between India and the U.S. in the kind of influences that I had that, you know, my heart kind of broke a little bit. I was homesick. I wanted my parents, um, you know, as as a teenager at that point, you just want to go to a safe haven. And my parents, even though my my relatives who took care of me, my aunts were incredible and were like my mother's um, and still are. But, um, you know, you just want to sort of crawl back into the familiar blanket. And that to me was going back home. And I just had enough by then. Yeah, well... It's interesting because you say going back into a familiar blanket, familiar situation. But when you had left India, there were not people that were mistaking you for the world's most beautiful woman at that point. Now you get back there and suddenly it's a very different ballgame, right? <laughs> well, I guess, you know, what happens to a female body from when you're 12 years old to when you're 17. Yes. You know, th those things. are some big changes. <laughs> In, in some in some cases, yeah. in some cases, you're right. Yeah. But, you know, those changes happened and I was feminine and I suddenly realized it. And I realized that when I walked down a street, you know, people sometimes turned around and looked. And, you know, when you're a teenager and you're at a mall, I remember me and my friends used to go to malls when we were in high school just to see how many numbers we could get or, you know, how many people would, how many boys would turn around and look at us. And that was just like high school things that you would do. Mm -hmm. And here I come back into the environment that I had left when I was 12 years old. And I, people are looking at me completely differently. And this I was not used to. I was used to, I was used to it in America in high school, but in the same environment that I had grown up in. Now all of these kids looking at me strange. And I also... I also had a, you know, a little bit of, not a little bit, I had quite an American accent at that point when I went back and I was just different. I used to dress in flared jeans, you know, big hoops and that 90s hair and, you know, <laughs> makeup and, and I used to try and get away with wearing makeup in school when I came back to India and my teachers would not have it. I would try to wear like little <laughs> mascara or just a little bit of lipstick and I would always have to wash my face off. <laughs> Well, and your your uh, dad doesn't seem to have been a big, big fan of you uh, looking very beautiful because you literally wind up, as you write in the book, with basically living in a in a cage like situation, but for your own protection. Right. 
<laughs> it was it was it was rather funny because it was new for me as well. My dad also had just sent a 12 year old kid, and here comes this you know, five foot eight at that point, because I used to wear really high heels, you know, those 90s heels. Um, so I was suddenly like five foot eight wearing these jeans. I used to have my waist length hair down and I was not afraid of the attention. And right. my father did not like that. He did not <laughs> like that I was not afraid of the attention. And um, I would take his shirts and, you know, tie them up and make them like super crop tops. And he didn't know. <laughs> so he had to... Once there were some boys that followed me home and jumped into my balcony and my dad lost it. After that, he like jailed up our entire house. There was like <laughs> wrought iron bars outside of my balcony. And it still is. Our house in Bareilly still has those bars outside. <laughs> well, so with that being the case, does that should I conclude that your mom felt a little differently about it? Because I think it was she and your brother who around that same time were the ones that say, you know what, we're not going to tell Priyanka, but we are going to send off some photos, right? Well, I think, you know, there are times in life, Scott, that I feel destiny intervenes in a way that you can't explain. When, you know, there are all of these parts that sort of come together. I can still never explain how this happened. Why? I was bullied at a particular time. I decided I'm going to switch countries in the middle of high school, whereas I was just a year or two away from graduating. I come back to India. I'm a complete anomaly. And instead of being in, in the small town in India, and instead of being afraid of it, like I was when I went to America, when I was different when I went to America, I was afraid. I, I, you know, I wasn't confident. I tried to be invisible. But this time when I came back, I chose to embrace that. I chose to embrace the fact that, yes, I was different and people were looking at me strangely, but I'm going to make that into an aspirational thing instead of cowering down. Why did that happen to me that at that time I went to take some pictures for a scholarship program that I was applying to for a school in Australia? And the photographer said, you're really pretty. Can I take some more pictures? And teenage vanity. We've talked about it. I was pretty vain. <laughs> it comes back knocking. Uh, yeah. And I was like, yes, of course. I went back, I called my mom and my mom, like any parent was like, I have to be there with you. And we took these like mall shots, which, you know, with your hand on your face, soft focus. Um, and I don't know what came over my then 10-year-old brother. We used to always watch Miss India or like Miss World pageants. These pageants were, you know, very popular in India. I used to watch them every year. And I don't know what came over my brother. He saw an ad in a magazine and he told my mom, you know, we should send her in. I was, he was, my brother was kicked out of his room when I moved back into India because I was 17 and he was 10. So I think this was his ingenious way of getting me kicked out of the house. So he got his room back. To get back the room. <laughs> and well, it, it worked. worked. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm trying so, to say. Like, it, it was so weird how the, it seemed like the universe collided for all of that to happen, for me to be here in that moment. It's incredible. Well, so we should remind people you're 17 years old at that point. You go off to first Miss India, having never, I think you've said, never been to Mumbai. Um, so you're off to the big city, you win there, then you go to Miss World. Um, I guess first, though, I just want to, I don't want to skip over this, because this at the time must have been a major thing for, I mean, of course, at any time, a, a major thing for anyone, but it's a big change. Well, I think, you know, with everyone, and I was a girl who had just watched movies, right? And then now when you come into and you're thrown into a situation where people that you've grown up with um, and you've seen them on telly are suddenly, you know, a reality. And this was something that happened to me when I when I came to America as well. You know, I was, I was in these rooms with all of these people that, you know, you've just watched in movies and on TV. And I think that's the that's the strange part um of i was just a high school girl thrown into a completely different world and you know and i think i mentioned this part in the book which is when it comes to sinking or swimming i guess my nature is always to just keep my head above water mm -hmm. you know i guess people also have to remember it's not like there was a period of learning how to 
model or do anything else here. This is literally just what, like a couple of months from school uniform back in India to being on the world stage. As it progressed, were you growing in confidence? Were you intimidated? Well, I think I've always been competitive, even in board games or in any situation. I'm a competitive person. If you give me a race, I will try and win it. Um, And (laughs) I think I treated my pageants like that, both of them. I treated them like a race, like I have to get to the end and what's it going to take to get to the end? And I worked backwards and um, I think, you know, it was the year 2000, it was the millennium year. November 2000 is when I was crowned Miss World and November 1999, I was in school. So that was how much my life completely changed, going from, you know, a school kid uh, wearing my uniform and having my hem torn off because I used to wear really short skirts and my teachers never liked it. But (laughs) going from that kid to, you know, answering questions about the state of the world and meeting heads of states and having an opinion in a room and not being educated about everything. I was just 17 and 18 years old, but suddenly having to grow up um, and navigate an industry, which is, you know, that's not an our, the entertainment business is not an easy industry, especially for someone who's never even experienced any part of it. Um, and I was suddenly thrown into that. So it was either you take to it, try to learn or just, watch yourself fail. And I just have never liked that feeling. (laughs) My favorite quote of yours that I came across here was, quote, I remember having lunch in Spain and I had to have an opinion on the economy of Uganda at 18. (laughs) Close quote. That's, uh, you know, that's a big change from whatever a year before. But I'm just um, grateful I knew all the countries that I was talking about. I was really great at geography. But, you know, like that's a really tough thing to do as soon as to go from school into that. Crazy. Now, you were already, I think, being courted to act before Miss World, right? That was not something that necessarily, I mean, I'm sure that super uh, sized the interest, but that was in existence before, right? Even though you were, I think, looking at college and a potential career as an engineer and other things, you were... um, it's not like the acting thing came out of the out of nowhere, right? No. So just to give context to people who might not know, in India, whenever, you know, someone won a beauty pageant, normally the next step would be Indian movies, would be Hindi movies, um, normally called Bollywood. And that was just a natural progression. I think that, um, you know, we've had a lot of actors who have been Miss India's and have been had very prolific careers in the Hindi film industry. So as soon as I won Miss India, I kind of like started getting offers um, and people were curious about, you know, me doing Hindi movies. And at that time, I was still trying to figure out, okay, I have to go back to school. I have to represent my country at the Miss World pageant. What does that even mean? Um, You know, and it was just and also turning 18 at the same time, moving to the big city without my parents, you know, growing up and seeing independence for the first time. So it was just so much that was happening in that one, one and a half year period that I just decided that somehow I was I was going in for the Miss World pageant and I didn't want to sign a movie before that, just in case I could get a larger opportunity if I won Miss World. Yeah. Which was so obnoxious and like if I think about it now, like it was a little cocky of me. It's it's good to have some confidence. (laughs) I mean, I really, when I was writing that part in the book, I was like, what were you thinking? You just literally came out of army school uniform in Bareilly and you actually made a plan about the fact that if I win, you know, Miss World, I might get a better or bigger movie. Like, (laughs) what? (laughs) It's so funny. Well, um. So I I did, uh, I want to bring up another just kind of great sort of uh, out of the movies itself kind of story where, you know, there's now this early interest in you being an actress and doing movies. And I get, or I I don't know even if how far along that was at that point. And apparently you're out with some friends and there's six billboards, right? Within, I I say, with some movie on it. What what was your take at that moment? Well, this was... um 
four or five years into, um, you know, after Miss India. So it was around 2005 yes. or so. I was, had been in the movies for about three or four years. And I remember when I had just become Miss India and I just moved to Mumbai, you know, for the first time. Me and my best friend at the time sat at this beach, which is called Juhu Beach. It's like this famous beach, which has a turn and it has six billboards. And they usually advertise the upcoming movies or like products or brands or whatever. And we were sitting there one evening, you know, just like hanging out on the beach and just looking at these billboards. And I remember because, you know, I was being courted for movies at that point. I remember telling my friend that I was like, if I end up doing movies, you know, I want to be on all six of these billboards <laughs> one day. Again, extremely obnoxious. <laughs> but you know what? Three, four years later that happened and I called up that friend of mine and we had a conversation and had lots of tears and I was like, I cannot believe it. I had about four four movies coming out at you know, back to back because of dates. I had a couple of brands. So on all six of them, um, I saw something that I had worked on and that happened just so quickly that it was it was a lovely moment. That's awesome. Yeah. I Wonder if you can share, you know, another thing that just to tease a little bit about um, something that's discussed in the book. And I think it's it's something that is not a new problem to the entertainment industry of, of any country, but it is kind of mind blowing that coming off of Miss World, when the whole world is essentially, you know, in a way telling you you are beautiful, you now have to go to work on a, you know, an early film and some idiot says to you, you know, do a twirl and here's what's wrong with you, right? I mean, yes, I was now, again, this is at 18. If I set the scene, I have won Miss World, you know, I'm getting offers by film producers and, but my manager at that time was like, you must meet all the, you know, hit makers and you must meet all the filmmakers. So they, they know that you're looking for work and which is generally how it's done. You know, you take general meetings. So I was like, okay, fine. I don't know anything about this. So I started taking these general meetings and it was in one of these meetings that a, that filmmaker said that, but I didn't know that was not normal, you know, cause I'm coming from school. I'd never been in the entertainment business. So to me, it was so normalized that I thought that was normal. And I thought that filmmakers had the right to tell young actresses that what is wrong with them or the fact that, you know, you're overweight or underweight or what you should physically look like. And I believed that for a while. And if he's saying that to you, imagine what he's saying to somebody who didn't win Miss World. Absolutely. And again, at that young of an age, it was not something that I understood because of the normalization of it. And that's where I think that's what perpetuates the largest problems in the world is when we normalize or we get desensitized to things that happened. And, you know, I only realized that that was not okay when I started sort of having a sense of self as I found my feet within the entertainment business. And, but I, I spent a lot of time in fear of, you know, making the wrong move or doing the wrong thing where this career that had just about started and is so fragile because there's no, um, there's no consistency in an actor's life, right? It's the next job and the next job. It's the constant hustle of our existence, um, the plight and the excitement, I guess. But um, I think, you know, so you're constantly focusing on trying to build a career that I didn't want to make any wrong mistakes at that point. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't understand, Bollywood is serving 1.2 billion people, I think, by last count. And uh, that's you know, dwarfs, that's like three times, four times what, what, uh, American, the American population is. So this is, you know, to be a star in Bollywood, I just want people to have a, some context of how huge this is. And now with that, I, I wonder if I can just briefly prompt you and I'm not claiming at all to be any expert on Bollywood or Bollywood films, but I've read a lot about your career and the evolution there and seen some stuff. And I just wonder if I can mention a few of the important titles along the way and just like a sentence or two about what each one provokes in your memory as far as what it how it affected your career or anything like that. So it seems like an early really important one would have been in 2004 Itras. Mm -hmm. 
Aethras was um, was a pivotal point in my career. It was a remake of an American movie. I think it was the remake of Disclosure, but it was contextualized and culturally changed for India. And this was one of the first movies where I had like a really central part, which sort of moved the needle, you know. And um, I played um, a character, a negative character. You know, she was all things delectable to me now, but at that time I was really afraid of it because she was manipulative, she was um, sexual, she was abusive, um, abusive of her power. She was all those things that, you know, I was told when I first joined movies that you shouldn't do as a new actor um, because you don't want to go and be boxed as, as someone who, you know, is, is not angelic and is not like the girl you want to take home. <laughs> and, um, but you know, here I was, did not know anything any better. Um, I did not have anyone telling me what the right steps were. So I just went with my instinct. I loved the story. I remember watching the movie. Um, and I just wanted to try something which was different. I wanted to yeah. try something which I didn't see a lot of female actors doing. And that sort of became a repetitive pattern in my life as I moved forward through the, my choices. But that was a very, it was the first time when I walked out of a screening of a movie that people stood outside to talk to me. And mm. they waited to have a conversation with me to yeah. tell me that my performance was great. And it was the first time I've ever felt that. And this was a few movies in. So I had been yeah. out of, you know, screening rooms before where everyone was like, yeah, you're great. But something had shifted with this one. And I felt the gravity of it for the first time. Yeah. Well, I think that the sort of canvas of what you were able to do after that clearly grew the size of the projects because in 2006, that was the beginning of two franchises that you've been a part of, I believe. Uh, the first Indian superhero franchise, Krish, and also Don. Uh, and I just wonder, did you, at this point, are you thinking in terms of, you know, how you want to shape a career as opposed to just taking the the kind of next good part that comes along? Or, you know, was it a coincidence that you're now part of two big, big movies like that? Well, I think Aethras did a lot for me. I know I was cast in Krish because of Aethras. I, I know that the director, uh, Rakesh Roshan, he went and saw the um, dailies for for Aethras and I was so nervous because I was like, oh man, he's never going to cast me after he watches this movie because I play a bad guy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it was the opposite that happened and um, very excited. It was an amazing experience. Um, and even with Dawn, I was uh, I was such a fan of the filmmaker Farhan, who I've worked with multiple times. And um, it was, you know, the, both these movies were my first big mainstream movies. And that was a conscious step. And I was grateful it happened at that time. Yeah. You have been a part of a lot of movies where the music then takes on a life of its own. And two of those, I just got to quickly mention, uh, Salam Ishq with Tenu Leke, if, if I'm pronouncing, I'm sorry if I'm mm -hmm. not. Tenu uh, Leke. Not yes. Bad. And uh, and Dostana the year after in 2008 with Desi Girl, which, uh, mm -hmm. you know, my friends tell me that there are weddings. They couldn't go to a wedding for like years without hearing uh, both of these. So or, or particularly Desi Girl, I guess. So um, just the maybe something you, if you have anything to say about just the the music element of movies in Bollywood at a time when it's sad, you know, American movies used to have much more of it, but now that's really a, a Bollywood thing more than anything. Well, I, I'd love to take an opportunity to explain to people how that works. So it's, it's, it almost might feel like, you know, every movie is a musical and suddenly the narrative stops and, you know, there's a song and then you go back and the narrative starts again, but that's not really true. Um, a lot of the songs within um, each movie is used in a melodious way to take the script forward, to take the plot forward, to tell you um, musically what each character is going through. And that's just a, a creative choice, um, which can take you into a big set piece or can take you into a background score or can take you into... Um, the only thing that's different with ours is we have a vertical called playback singing, where we as actors, um, most of the time lip sync the song, but you get 
the actual singer is credited within the movie as well as the playback singer and the originator of the song. But that's existed for hundreds of years in um, in Hindi movies. And it's just a different way of doing things. It gives, uh, I've sung a few of my songs, but it also gives actors the opportunity, you know, who, who can't sing and, you know, singers the opportunity who can't act. Yes. So um, it's, it's it, that's the only difference. But I just, um, I, I, Bollywood movies are an experience because India as a culture is extremely musical. You know, we win the World Cup, you see us playing drums and being on the roads. You <laughs> see a baby being born and there'll be music and drums. We just can't help but dance. So <laughs> dancing and music is a huge part of our culture and our expression. So it had to yeah. be a part of the movies. So that leads into back-to-back movies that I know are two of your most, like, uh, acclaimed in terms of your performances. First of all, at a time when I think you were coming off of a few movies that you yourself felt, I think, had underperformed, then along comes fashion, which you become the one of the youngest ever winners of India's equivalent of the Best Actress Oscar. And it seems like that would have had to be a, a major turning point. Fashion was a major turning point in my life. Um, it was a movie um, which was helmed by me. And at that time, it was one of the first movies where um, I was the main protagonist of of the movie. And it wasn't, you know, with another big actor or um, standing on the shoulders of uh, a male actor. So, um, and I also had two other female co-leads with me, um, Kangana Ranaut and Mukta Godse, who both, so it was like a very female heavy movie. And at that time, it was the early 2000s or mid 2000s. Um, I remember when I took on the movie, I was told that, you know, taking on a female, uh, female centric movie, you know, that's a big risk. And girls do that at the end of their careers. It's usually a swan song. It's usually for awards. And, and here I was like three years into, you know, completely newbie, but again, didn't know any better. I just went with my gut, loved the story, worked on, um, on the script with, uh, the director of the movie, Madhur Bandarkar, for almost six months, just because creatively just compelled me. Um, and I wanted to be a part of it. And I just didn't like narratives that were already existing. Like, right, this is the mold you fit in. So somehow, just naturally, without knowing any better, I was just pushing the goalpost for myself. And um, in and that sort of just, and that movie ended up doing really well at the box office, which was not usually norm for female movies and um you know it just kick-started this thing and there were so many female movies that came in after that that actually did well in the box office i'm not saying i was the first there were few before me but um i just think that fashion really pushed the needle in that direction for my generation of actors well and then in terms of an acting challenge i don't know if anything could have been more demanding than playing 12 characters uh, in What's Your Rashi the year after 2009. It's a kind of romantic comedy. uh, But I mean, that is that's Meryl Streepian to have to do that. And no prosthetics. No, right. No, uh, no help. No, um, but that's exactly what that was. I think after fashion and a few of the movies that I had done at that time, I was bit really bad by the acting bug. Like, I was like, okay, we need immersive experiences. We need, how do you challenge yourself the most? And I mean, when I got a script, which gave me the ability to play 12 different parts and be 12 different signs in the Zodiac and prosthetics and stuff, just, I don't know. I, I, I kind of challenged myself to see if I could create 12 different people with just my body language, hair, makeup, wardrobe, and just create 12 different personalities. And eventually that's my job as an actor, right? To in every movie present a different person. So if I couldn't do 12 in one movie, how am I actually doing my job? So I kind of wow. challenged myself um, and it was it was such joy to work through that. My script was the size of, like I can't even, <laughs> it had so many notes. I had read Linda Goodman, you know, front to back. And it was it was such a fun experience. Was it, I know, you know, in, in American movies, it's, they're very rarely shot in sequence. I can't imagine doing that one out of sequence because how would you even keep track? Was that, was that in sequence? No, it wasn't in sequence. You can't oh. really shoot a movie in sequence. We shot it, you know, um, 
by location as you usually do and uh, but I had done enough homework and prep where I knew each one of my characters I knew you know and the team knew uh, so I could in fact I could do two characters within the same day as well because I just needed a little bit of time to remember the walk and how she spoke and but I had done so I'm a, I'm a big believer in prep I do a lot of prep yeah. and then I let it go um, and yeah. then when you come to set it's just you know it it's like muscle memory it's amazing. Well, there are so many I could mention. I'm just going to mention two more from that era of your life. If that's okay. And one of them you've called the toughest role of your career up to that point, at least. And yet it ended up being a uh, commercial film, um, big blockbuster, India's entry for the Oscars uh, in 2012. And that was Barfi as a uh, an autistic heiress in a kind of triangle of a story, right? Well, Barfi is a really special film because, first of all, I'm a huge fan of the filmmaker Anurag Basu. He's one of India's finest. Um, and he just has an extremely wonderful lens through which he sees stories. And this is a story with very few words because the male protagonist, um, whose name is Barfi, he's playing the title part, um, Ranbir Kapoor, he um, is deaf and mute. And my character is autistic. And then there's another girl who is, you know, who's able to hear. Um, and it's the sto- it's a love story between, it's a love triangle between these th- three very peculiar characters. And it's musical and it's beautiful. And it was such an immersive experience. But for me, you know, being someone who is not autistic and does not have the experience of what that world is like... Um, it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done. And every day I'm grateful that, you know, people think that I did an authentic enough job because that's not the easiest, That that's, it's impossible to be able to understand the spectrum at all because that spectrum is so large. Um, but my, you know, we spent a lot of time um, understanding it. We spent a lot of time in autistic schools with kids. And, you know, I was, it was a privilege to play Chilmil for me. Yeah. Um, the final one before your, that I'm going to mention before your career really went truly international is Mary Calm, where I don't know, had you played a real person before, uh, 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 in this case, a champion boxer? No, I, I never played a real person before. At least I don't remember. <laughs> um, uh, I think that, you know, Mary Calm, she was why this movie was especially special is because she's my age and she's she was a living icon that still was playing for the Olympics, that was still a large participant and is still a large participant in Indian sport. And that responsibility was crazy uh, to take on. I was grateful that, the, you know, I got the opportunity and um, I was very excited about and honored that she took me under her wings and I was trained by her coaches and I spent a lot of time with her and her family. Um, I don't look very much like her physically, but I wanted to embody the spirit of this young girl who changed Indian boxing. You know, boxing wasn't a national sport till Mary Com decided to, you know, make it happen and till she joined well, boxing that year. And, and you did is, get uh, you did get ripped. We have to say. I mean, that is not a. Uh, <laughs> I tried. Um, no, but yeah. I did. I, you can't. I, I played a boxer. Um, I right, had to learn right. the sport. Um, and the funny part about it is, I'm a right hander and she's a left hander. So I had to learn all my boxing like a southpaw. And I still, in my fights now, whenever I'm doing action, my yeah. natural stance is southpaw because <laughs> I just learned how to box yeah. that way. Right. <laughs> So I guess, you know, one of the things that I found very interesting, you, you've talked about somebody who was a past guest of this podcast and said he was he's your mentor in America. Maybe that I don't I don't know if it's still the case, but Jimmy Iovine, how did you and he first cross paths? Well, I will definitely say that Jimmy was a big, big reason and a motivation for me to attempt working in the U.S. Uh, my now manager, Angela Acharya, who um, had a music, a record label called Desi Hits at that time. This is 2010, 2009, actually. And um, she, Jimmy was an investor in her, uh, in her label and she and Jimmy were very close and she had seen some of my work and knew that I could sing. And, you know, they had just done, um, 
I think Jai-ho for the movie Slumdog Millionaire together. They had done some Indian and, you know, American music work together and um, they were looking for the new thing. And I think Anjula showed him some work that I'd done and he said, you know, see if we can sign her. And she flew down with um, the head of Universal at that time and um, UK and US came and met me in India. And, you know, I was just excited and curious at the same time. I'd never really professionally done music, but music is my life's like, I'm, I'm most starstruck with musicians, like nothing like actors. Okay. I feel like somewhere even, you know, I'm like, all right, you're my peer, but musicians, I think <laughs> music is magical. So yeah. I was very curious about the opportunity and um, that's how me and Jimmy met for the first time is Ange flew me down to New York and she was like, you know, I was signed for Universal Music and then I was signed for Interscope, which was Jimmy's, um, Jimmy's company at the time. And um, that's when I met Jimmy Ivan in New York at the Monkey Bar for the first time and he looked at me and goes, ah, I can do that. That's easy. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> And he just always believed in me, um, yeah. even when I didn't. I, I don't know what he saw, but that's what makes Jimmy as great as he is. Is He sees things um, and he hears things and he believes. And he really, really pushed me not only to do the limited music that I did, but also, you know, pushed me to seek representation and, um, you know, seek work in American movies and um, he just said, he's like, you're, you're, you're supposed to be doing this. He's so, and I would not believe it, but so he's a big motivation, mo motivational yeah. factor for me. And we should just note that your debut album, I forget if it was 2012 or 2013, but that comes out. Um, you have a single around that same time in my city that's on Thursday night football in for the NFL. I mean, that's, you don't get much more American than that. And, uh, it was, um, it was an interesting, you know, kind of breaking into America and then followed, I guess, pretty shortly thereafter by the acting side of things. And so the other person I feel like I have to ask you to just share who uh, this person is and the impact they had on your life. Kelly Lee from ABC. Well, really funny story, but um, Kelly Lee at that time, and this is 2012 or something, I'd been making music for two years she um, was the vice president of casting for ABC Studios. And I was at a dinner with Jimmy and Anjula and one more person, literally 20 people dinner, like at someone's home um, and just like friends. And I happened to meet her and she and I started chatting and she just asked me, she was like, would you do American TV? And you know, I was like, what's a large commitment? I was a big fan of American TV, you know, at that time, Grey's Anatomy and mm -hmm. especially ABC was doing all of this amazing work. And uh, I, I remember like Scandal and my mom and I used to watch it all the time. It was our show together. So I was so curious about them wanting the to push the envelope when it comes to diversity on ABC network. And that's what Kelly said to me. She was like, you know, um, that's what I want to do is I want to have international faces as leading parts across um, ABC network. And that's what made me really interested is when I started seeking work in America, I was very clear about one thing is what the one thing that I wanted to be a part of was mainstream pop culture. And I did not see a lot of people who look like me being part of mainstream pop culture, you know, not the genre movies or the independent movies, but like, a network TV show mm -hmm. or, a, you know, a super Marvel movie or... So when she said that, it was exactly what I had been seeking. And I told her, I was like, is that a possibility? She was like, absolutely, let me come back to you. And to her credit, she flew down to India, met me at my film set in Mumbai, spent one day and she brought me a talent deal from ABC Studios. And, you know, they said that come into LA pilot season and read the pilots that we have for you and see what you want to do. And the only thing I told them was, I said that, you know, I, I don't want to do my big fat Indian wedding. I don't want to do that. Unfortunately, that show that you would expect someone who looks like me to do. And they were like, absolutely. That's not what we want to make with you. We want to break the mold. And to their credit, 
they gave me 26, 25 scripts to read. None of them were defined by where I come from, my culture, but were just parts, you know, and so was Quantico. I played an Indian American whose ethnicity was not defined by the show. I was just an FBI agent. And, and to me, that was just extremely liberating and exciting, um, especially as an actor, a, you know, a minority actor that's trying to break into a very specific kind of looking field. Yeah, no, it's amazing. That was three seasons, of course, and you were the first Indian lead of a of a mainstream network show. I mean, that's an incredible thing to kind of trailblaze. And um, and we should give, as you say, you know, ABC deserves credit because it was not just you. It was Kerry Washington with Scandal. It was Sandra Oh with Grey's Anatomy, Sofia Vergara with Modern Family. They've they've really been the um, you know, at the, at the vanguard of this diversification of, of TV. But as you went to America, was there anything in, you know, we hear this often with, with music artists when they quote unquote crossover or whatever, was there a concern that, you know, in potentially growing your fan base on one continent, you could be perceived as neglecting the fan base on the other? How do you, I mean, I know you would continue, I guess, during hiatuses, you continue to do, uh, work in India, but was that, how did you juggle that consideration that not many people had had to even worry about before? Well, it was, it was never a consideration. It was, um, it was, I was never going to choose between the two. I was very clear about the fact that my career in India will always be a large part of who I am. It's my identity. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive at that time, you know, um, and I don't think they are even now. Even now I'm doing work in India. Yes, it's not probably as much because I'm building a little bit more in America. Um, I spent that time exclusively building in India when I was working in India. Now I'm just about doing my first dramatic part and I'm just about doing my first leading role in a movie, you know. So it's taking a little bit more of an investment on this side um, of the world. But but I just did um, a Hindi movie two years ago called The Sky is Pink. I did one while I was filming Quantico. I did two, actually. Um, you know, every hiatus that I had or weekends that I had, I would go back. So it was a very conscious effort for me to make sure that I do not choose the two. I wanted to just expand myself, work in a different language. Hindi and English are both my first languages. I wanted to be able to expand that medium as well. Um, and even now with my production house, we are producing in India and in the US content in both languages. So um, I feel very privileged to be able to straddle both worlds. The only other person I remember who had probably ever done this was Sophia Loren. And I admire her tremendously when she worked in Italian movies as yes. well as in American movies. So, you know, exactly. it's kind of cool. It's a, it's a great point to make that comparison. We had, she was, it was very Great honor to have her on this podcast a few weeks ago. And you're exactly right. She was talking about the same things about, you know, do you do you're, she's doing movies in Italy, movies in America, then English language movies shot in Italy. I mean, it was it was hard to even keep track. But, um, you know, entering the, the home stretch of this conversation, we you brought it up perfectly. The fact that you're also producing um, in recent years and to then be combining acting and producing to such great success with Ramin Barani's film, The White Tiger, which you yourself got to announce as a as an Oscar nominee. That was pretty cool. Um, it's up for best adapted screenplay. You're playing this woman, Pinky, a I think it's fair to say a woman who thinks she's more woke than she turns out to be. Uh, <laughs> and, like most uh, of us. Like most of us, probably. Yes. Uh, but just I wonder if you can share how you first, did you first come across the material as a producer or as an actress and just how did it evolve? Well, first of all, I feel so blessed to be working at a time where I have the choice to be a producer, where I have the ability to align with, you know, studios and filmmakers who are giving opportunities to female actors to create parts for themselves, you know, where there were very few parts like the ones that I want to be in. And now I'm working with a generation of women that are just not taking the shit anymore and are yeah. saying that, you know, we're going to do it ourselves. So 
I feel really privileged, first of all, to have started doing that with Indian movies. And I did not Hindi language films, I did regional language movies, um, which are localized to most states in India. And because I think storytelling everywhere deserves an opportunity, and especially diversification of storytelling is so crucial. And I'm such a big example of that because I did not see the kind of work that now I'm seeing after almost six years of pounding the pavement. Um, you know, it, it takes that kind of time for people to say, oh, it's a possibility that, you know, a movie with an all Indian star cast can be the number one movie across Netflix in 160 countries. Like in that stuff would probably not be the same if it wasn't for the streamers, if it wasn't for um, us making the world of entertainment into such a small place now. Um, so that's really exciting. And, um, you know, The White Tiger, I, I remember having read the book. I was a big fan of the book. It had come out around 2008 or nine. I, I think it came across me. And I the feeling that I had after I finished watching the movie was exactly how I felt when I had read the book was, you know, feeling uncomfortable, helpless at the same time, but still being on the ride of my life. Like it was a story that just jumps out of its pages. You know, you're, you're kind of trying to keep, keep up with Balram's character. And Ramin just adapted that, that novel with the spirit of exactly what a novel does into a screenplay. That's really hard to do, um, you know, to retain that kind of uh, spirit, the animalistic primal spirit that this, this story had. And I just, I remember reading it on, on in a trade magazine that the movie was being adapted for Netflix and I just activated my agents. I was like, <laughs> call them, tell them I want to be a part of it. I want to offer my services. I'll do whatever it takes. I, you know, chased Ramin. I met him in Mumbai. I met him in New York. I met him in LA. I auditioned for him a bunch of times. I just wanted to be aligned with the movie really badly. And, um, Thankfully, they believed in what I was saying. And I just, I, I was, I so desperately did not want this movie to be put into a box of independent cinema or, you know, it's, it's a mainstream story. It's the mainstream story of the underdog and it deserves that kind of attention. And I just really wanted to use my platform to be able to do that. And I'm just so glad that um, I got the job, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, it's terrific. And, uh, And I guess I wonder, is there something you hope people take away from it? It's a story of modern modernizing India, I think it's fair to say, which has its complications the same way that America and, you know, the whole world, you know, it's, it's a changing. We're in a feels like a period of transition with globalization, all of that. But I guess I wonder, is there something that you would hope people take away from it? I think the one thing that I hope when you watch the story is, you know, it, it, it I think it should be a moment of self-reflection of how desensitized we have become to the class divide that exists everywhere between the rich and the poor um, or the disparity that exists between races or, you know, the disparity that exists between um, minorities and, and you know, the majority of the world and everywhere. So I think it's these divides which have become inequity, which has become so apparent, especially in, in 2020. I think... This movie for me is is a is a great moment to sort of reflect on on how what we can do about changing that. Um, I think we've all become so desensitized to just when is the last time you've driven past a homeless shelter or a homeless person and you know moved on with your day. That's just how we live. But I think we have to open our eyes to a large part of the world that does not have the privilege that we do. Um, and what can we do about that? Um, I think it, that's what I hope that people take away from this movie, besides the fact that Arvind Vadiga is an incredible um, author and Ramin Barani is a phenomenal filmmaker. Yes. Well, last question, if I can. I just, you know, you are still so young and yet you have now written a best-selling memoir. I wondered why now and what is, in fact, in your mind, unfinished? What are What's on the to-do list still as we look ahead to the future? Oh my gosh, uh, Scott, so much. I feel like, I'm, <laughs> like I said, you know, I've just about started building my artistic career in, in, in the US. I'm just about starting to find the foundation that I had been working for all of these years, you know, by taking on smaller roles and sort of building. Um, so I'm hoping that I'll be able to showcase 
a variety of genres like I have within my work in India. I've, I've had the opportunity to play a plethora of parts. I want to be able to do that here. I want to be able to be, you know, um, as Purple Pebble Pictures, I want to tell stories which are evocative, interesting, which, you know, sort of find the um, the gap within storytelling that influxes Hollywood with the much needed diversity that it requires, especially now that, you know, Hollywood is becoming so um, hugely global. It's, you know, the English language it's, itself lends um, it to be a global industry and people watch Hollywood around the world and there's a responsibility to that. There's a responsibility to represent an audience that um, is consuming this entertainment and I, I want to be hopefully able to do that. I want to be able to make stories in, in India and tell Indian movies. There's just so much I want to do, <laughs> but hopefully also write another book. Well, it's exciting. And uh, we should just remind people of the movie, which they can watch now on Netflix, wherever they are in the world, uh, The White Tiger. And the book is now a bestseller. I just passed it by I, at Barnes & Noble yesterday, and I have been re I've had it my own copy before. It is Unfinished, a memoir by Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. This was so nice. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.